0: You were talking about coffee. I was you, talking you, about do you coffee. Change your, you said you change your coffee setup.
1: I change my coffee. Yeah, I was saying every it's, year. It's, not, it's not really a New Year's resolution. It's just that um, for whatever reason around New Year's, I start to rethink my, my coffee approach, my approach to caffeine consumption. So last year I moved the coffee pot right next to the bed and set it for five minutes before <laughs> I set my alarm so that I would wake up to the smell of, do you, do of you, coffee and I could reach over and pour do it. Do you
0: drink like before you open your eyes? Or are you like a like a baby? Essentially like a baby pig coming out of the womb and like your eyes don't open. You know, Essentially. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I so I I knew this guy in college who um what he would do he this was after college that he did this, but uh I knew him in college and he uh what he would do is he would set his alarm, um For 20 minutes before he wanted to wake up and then he would set a second alarm for when he wanted to wake up and the night before he would make um, two espressos and he would put them next to his bed. (laughs) The first alarm would go off. He'd down the two espressos and then he'd go back to sleep. Wow. So that the caffeine was hitting the bloodstream right as the second alarm went off and he just popped right out of bed. (laughs)
2: I consider whether to how, try much that now, how much now how much coffee do you drink in a day? But the room temperature, the espresso is a room temperature. But he's
1: he's barely conscious. Okay, so, so he doesn't really mind. Care? Yeah. You <laughs> think he maybe even put them on ice, <laughs> so that they were it was like chilled espresso. Right. Christian, now, I, had, a, I had a, a question. Our, Wait,
2: no, I, I, I have a, a more, more important d- question. W- oh, I, yeah. Who's our guest?
0: Tim Meyer. Hello. I don't think we need to say anything. We, I, I, as we mentioned last week, we don't do um, biographies or any of that. No, no. Tim, he's a guy who works at law school with us. Right. Is there, is there anything more to say? I think not. No. We hang out sometimes. Right. Uh, great guy. Um, also, also a world-renowned international law scholar. But that's, I think that's hardly the most important thing. That's certainly not why we asked him here today. It's beyond tertiary. Yeah, I think so. I want to hear, so how many cups of coffee a day? Because I think this is Tim's secret. I think we're getting close
1: to Tim's Dur- secret. During the semester, uh, if you measure a cup as being like a 12-ounce cup. Uh, and I do. My guess is that... It exceeds ten.
2: Oh! Jeez. Whoa! You are kidding me.
1: No, I'm not kidding you.
2: The thinness makes so much more sense now, because <laughs> his body is like a furnace. I mean, it's just yeah. burning everything it comes in contact
1: with. I make like an eight cup, you know, pot of coffee for myself in the morning and drink it all before, before, and then I have before uh, what before I leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then I have. That is nuts. Then I go to the Jittery Joes and I get a, whatever size a medium is. I'll have a medium when I teach, and if I teach twice, that's two. And then I have at least another one in the afternoon. now if you, if you sometimes went, I get shots of espresso added to the Jittery Joes.
0: Oh, because why not? Now, if yeah. you if you went without for a day, do you think you would die? I actually recently
1: did about three, four, die five days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Uh, no, I was, I, I was sick. And so I just was laying in bed and I didn't feel like having any coffee. And so seems like
0: the ideal time to withdraw from caffeine.
1: So that I do it about once a year that I, I do that. So yeah. this is usually, it's usually in connection with rethinking is that, um, we hit the end of the semester in December and I start to come down and then um I'll, I'll like pull back and i'll cut back to mm-hmm. a cup a day mm-hmm. or or maybe even nothing i went i went about four or five days without any coffee now how, how did that go how did you feel i feel fine no man. enormous pain
0: no you're a machine wow. you're more machine than man really. the
2: times <laughs> i've left coffee behind um have always been extremely painful like yeah. the, the first day the first two days really yeah or the headache is really intense
1: yeah
0: now we haven't said it on this show i didn't even drink coffee until the age of 35 Wow! Wow! And I decided. Wow! And I went all the way through math grad school without coffee, which is that's alarming. It seems like yeah. Were you drinking like, soda? No, no. You weren't I, drinking you I, caffeine drink of any kind. No caffeine. Were you really? Just I mean, I, no I tablets, It's not like or? I wasn't having soda at all. Occasionally, I'd have a soda, but not not normally. Um. Uh, so no, and I and I didn't really like tea either. I just I didn't have coffee or anything. And then mm. at at thirty five, I realized you know I need a stimulant in my life.
2: Mm, right. I Were need, you a cocaine I user? No, were you snorting powdered no-dos? No,
0: no, no, no stimulants of any kind. Wow, just you know, that's nuts. Just me, yeah. and then I realized me was not enough, at 35. <laughs> and and so um and did so Meredith I started tell you that <laughs> <laughs> every day, <Right>. every day, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, and eventually you, you believed it. You well, really, you you really, did, really you know? need something. I think else. we've come to terms with my limitations, <laughs> but um, uh, and so so I started drinking. I I had a few um uh, chocolate covered espresso beans. Mm-hmm. And because I, I like the smell of like uh, yeah. of of coffee beans and stuff, but I just didn't drink coffee. I wasn't yeah. sure about you know, and um and then I started drinking, I guess mochaccino, which is you know not a great you know it's not my favorite. But then then I discovered the cappuccino, right? And then I was hooked. And then I drink black coffee and cappuccino. So yeah. usually I'll have a one cappuccino, yeah, in the morning if I'm going by two story. It's a little buzz marketing. Yeah. Uh, or, uh, and, and then usually like a, a cup of black coffee later in the day. Yeah. So that's, and, and if I feel, and every now and then I'll just not have any so that, because my goal is not to build up tolerance at all. So right. every time I drink a cup, it's like, you know, you get that little jolt.
1: I can drink uh, several cups of coffee after dinner by high test coffee and have, it has no effect no on effect. my ability to sleep.
0: Now, do other, I mean, are you affected by, by any external stimuli?
2: <laughs> his uh, response to our question yeah. suggests the answer is
1: yes yeah well, that's true because we true. are
2: external stimuli right right yeah.
1: so and unless we, this is and, all and a big stimulation. Stimulation. Yeah, when we are mm-hmm. weak
0: stimuli too so this is impressive yeah. yeah
1: and now that i live in the south i get cold i didn't used to get cold i didn't wear a jacket until i was probably 20 30 i grew up in new york lived in colorado yeah for a while So i was in my mid-20s probably before i had a jacket it was after i lived in california
0: I went to Texas for grad school. Wore shorts yeah. just about every day, even through yeah. the winter. Yeah. People thought I was nuts, but you don't. You don't need them. You don't need long pants.
1: Yeah, my where dad did, didn't where you put on a jacket. My school. dad didn't believe in jackets. He had gone really. to school when he was in, in and yet they middle exist. Middle school and high school. He uh, went to school in New Hampshire, like Northern New Hampshire. Yeah, and he just decided that you didn't need, unless you were living somewhere like that or Canada. Right, you didn't need a jacket. No, and, um, unless
2: it's cold. Is your dad President Josiah Bartlett? he's not he's not but i don't think president bartlett believed in jackets either
1: yeah there's some similarities well he thought he had a doctor when he was a kid who told him that you could essentially build an immunity to cold if you didn't wear a coat and then you didn't get sick and so this is what he always told me when i was a kid Mm. and so i just developed an immunity to cold you may recall in
2: the west wing episode when president bartlett was going to have a meeting with a newly uh ascending president of Russia, President Chagorin, there was discussion Mm -hmm. in the advance negotiations about whether President Bartlett would wear an overcoat Mm -hmm. when they met. He did not want to uh, wear one, but President Chagorin uh, really did want him to wear one. Mm-hmm. Now we're starting so to get to closer. Warm, we're starting man, to get a little
0: bit closer to an actual topic for today. Right. Is that, is uh, that, that but an an I will add this: no, you're I will, you wanted to talk about those no, pictures. Uh, of No, I, I kind of want to keep you know without I, a shirt on. I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to talk about whatever. Okay. You know, we can roll. You know, roll along. Let's. Uh, uh, but um, you can't get sick from being cold really no you don't get sick from being cold you don't get sick you get you get you get sick from viruses and bacteria and you don't get more uh you you don't become more prone to um uh infection because you're cold really
1: no no this is yeah this is what i later learned yeah oh that's interesting so
2: president warren g harding's death shortly after his inaugural when he was exposed for a great deal of time to extremely cold weather uh wasn't a byproduct of in, an increased in my, vulnerability
0: no, in my professional opinion no yeah.
2: okay
1: i mean you're yeah. a doctor i am I, I, I was going to ask, I am, professional what right? I, I
0: i i do have my doctor it <laughs> so i am okay. i'm a
2: doctor of right. something else i've also but seen you use the wikipedia the, mm-hmm. oh yeah well that's Extensively. how
0: do you think i got my phd
2: there you go right. that's right mm-hmm.
0: that's mm-hmm. right uh so we should Say why? Why Tim is here now? Tim, Tim is an expert in international law. And um, first question: Yes, are you ready? Yeah. I,
1: you well, how many, how, how many, many lifelines do I have?
0: <laughs> I, is Harlan back yet? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Some Harlan's like,
1: probably trapped in New York at AALS. With yeah, I got name. an
0: email from him the other day. So it, the listeners don't know who Harlan is, but they will. This is like,
1: yeah. this is what I always tell the students.
0: Well, or is with that called the any, other Harlan? With, with any, yeah. with in laws, you know, learning is yeah. like joining conversation that's already underway. Definitely. And
1: you just have to kind of keep listening until you can kind of right. catch on, right? And they, so this is the kind yeah. of thing. No, They don't know who Harlan is, the but, the they, Harlan. but they will. They do have email in New York. So the fact that you got an email doesn't preclude the possibility that he's still in New York.
0: Good point. True. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Good point. Uh, anyway, Right. Is international law law?
1: Yes. Okay. Back well, that's show, been
0: another, folks. yeah, that's been a, yeah. this has been a great one.
2: <laughs> what would you say to someone who said that
1: it is not law? Because in in fact, many people express skepticism of that proposition. So you have to figure out what it is. So one, one thing you could say to that is, uh, and usually what I say is, tell me what you mean by law. Yeah. Um, and so then somebody gives you some definition of law that, Usually what they do, either they fumble with it and they don't have an answer to that question, right. in which case the conversation is short and over. Right. Um, or, and you, you point out to them that they have to have a definition of law before they can say that something's not. Mm-hmm. Um, or they give you something like it is, You know, they give you some sort of Austinian definition right. of, of the law. Um,
0: Austinian, now now here, the footnote is, this is a um, command uh, issued by a sovereign backed, backed by, by threats. The threat of force, right? right, so this is like, you know, if you... You know, if you kill somebody, then you will go to jail if you do this and this happens. So it's a command to conform your behavior backed by a threat issued by someone with authority. And that's the it's Austinian because it comes from this guy, Austin. Right. um, It's a classical formulation that most of the 20th century was concerned with kind of either reformulating or rejecting or something like that. And and obviously it does not apply
2: to most of what we think of as international law. Right. Right. Or international relations, if you don't want to assume the phrase international law when you're trying to figure out if it's real right 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 but yeah go ahead so when someone gives you the austinian
1: definition what's
2: your riposte?
1: so uh if that's your definition of law that there has to be some overarching sovereign that is able to issue commands that are backed by the threat of force then uh one thing i might say is that if that's your understanding of law, then I agree with you that international law um, is not law, or at least it might not be. Here are some other things that are also not law, right? Much of constitutional law is not going to be law um, so understood, right? Because it's not actually um, – it's unadjudicated in courts. Oftentimes the Austinian definition, when people answer that question, they tie it into the idea that there's a court that's going to tell you what it means and that, that the court's understanding will be um, uh, enforced by – the, the Sovereign so they, they add that kind of gloss to it um, and right the Supreme Court all the time says oh that's that 's non justiciable and and we have all these these features of the Constitution where um, nobody is really um, uh, bound in the sense that there's some overarching Sovereign right most separation of powers doctrines work this way right there's no um, whatever the law law, and I'm making air quotes right now, uh, is, is not actually backed by the threat of force if it's not, if it's not complied with. So think about um, the, there was a big to-do uh, several years ago when the Obama administration wanted to commit some military assets um, in support of operations in Libya. And there right. was a question about whether or not this um, violated the War Powers Resolution, mm-hmm. and therefore, and the sort of the constitutional um, backdrop about war powers. You know, what's the? And there's this has been a question for years, right? It's, this is Clinton been, in Bosnia, too, right? Clinton in Bosnia, right? No, but but there's no, there is no overarching uh, sovereign that commands the executive, um, backed by the threat of anything, really, to mm-hmm. uh, to comply with whatever these norms are, and we don't really know what these norms are. Um, they're contested, and they're contested through this process, sort of back-and-forth process. The courts don't get involved, so they're contested this back-and-forth process between Congress um, and the president. It plays out in the shadow of mostly audience costs, right? The, the the primary mechanism that gets either Congress or the president to defer, to take a particular course of action, is um, the political ramifications of being seen to be in noncompliance with whatever the prevailing view of, of the law is. Right? Let, me,
0: let me try to restate that. Yeah. So, uh, so one way of looking at, um, w- when people say what is law or when they think of the law in the United States, you would say you need to think, if you want to understand the way the American system works, and let's just use system as, in a broad sense, really we're talking about government, right? Right. And government works by dialogue right. among a bunch of institutions, right? And some of that dialogue comes in the form of Austinian law, and some of it comes in other forms where one institution says to another what they should do or what they think uh, the law requires right. without saying, you know, uh, um, if uh, to President Clinton, if you authorize airstrikes in, in Bosnia, you'll have to go to jail or there will be a fine or in, or even this will happen. They simply say this is unconstitutional. Right. Right. And then if you try to shoehorn an Austinian theory into that. What you would say is when the Supreme Court speaks in that way, says that uh, if the president shuts down steel mills or does something else, it's unconstitutional, and the president does it anyway, then the remedy is for uh, uh, the House to impeach and the Senate to remove the president. And so the system actually is Austenian, one might say, but it divides authority, divides sovereignty uh, um, among one institution that kind of speaks what the law is and another Mm -hmm. that Jails or fines, or in this case, implements the power implements the sanction of removal. So there is a way to kind of shoehorn it in. You just have to understand a a more kind of dissolved uh, system.
1: I can shoehorn international law into that same understanding. So I bet. So So I want to hear. As soon as you start disaggregating and say, "Well, what we mean by Austinian is that there is a sanction, um, and that the sanction could be that you know, if if you know, you give the sort of Youngstown example, right? So, right. so suppose this is the this is steel, steel mill the president case. seizes the steel mills, the Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional. Um, Congress could then um, take action um, in aid of, essentially, the Supreme Court's um, opinion. Well, you have the same thing in international law. You have a situation in which um, you can imagine um, to th- – so the World Trade Organization works this way. You uh, go to um, the dispute settlement body of the World Trade Organization and you say um, – you're the United States, and you say, uh, "I think that China is violating um, its uh, commitments uh, to the World Trade Organization." Specifically, it's, its uh, where is the World
0: Trade Organization? Let's try to make this as specific as we can, because yeah. that will help people, okay. I think, have an intuition about it. So, if I'm, and so this is this is a this is set up by a treaty. Uh, and and um, uh, member states, basically mm-hmm. signatories to that treaty, can complain to a particular body about the activities of one another right. w- with respect to that treaty. So if uh, the United States implements some kind of environmental regulation, for example, right. that um, retards trade or does something else in violation of the, what would it be, the, the GATT?
1: Uh, it could be the GAT. The WTO has a bunch of different agreements, but the GAT is sort of the cornerstone. So a bunch strategy. of
0: different agreements specify the WTO as basically the enforcement mechanism.
1: Yeah, I mean the World Trade Organization is a, is an organization that has. If you actually read the or, the agreement founding the World Trade Organization, is quite short, mm-hmm. and it's got to the back of it. It essentially has stapled a bunch of different agreements um, as annexes. Um, the, the cornerstone, which was existed prior to the World Trade Organization, is the GATT. Um, right. The is, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Exactly. Um, but there's a bunch of other agreements. So there's the GATS, the General Agreement on Trade and Services. There's trips, uh, the trade-related aspects of intellectual property, Um, and then there's a bunch of uh, agreements that deal. There's some agreements that deal with specific sectors, um, right? And then there's a bunch of agreements that deal with what are called non-tariff barriers. So, for example, one of the things we worry about a lot are, um, you know, health and safety and environmental um, concerns. And it turns out, right, not not to be very hard to come up with what look like um, non-discriminatory. Um, For example, environmental measures whose purpose is, at least arguably, to discriminate against countries that have bad, uh, for example, what what one country might view as bad environmental practices. So, for example, there's a long-running dispute between the United States and Europe about genetically modified foods, um, Mm -hmm. genetically modified organisms, with Europe saying it's bad, the United States saying it's good. Um, or at least there 's nothing wrong with it um, so this is grains
2: and corn and this kind of stuff,
1: or yeah,
2: beef or what which modified organisms we're we talking about now? anything
1: okay anything i mean the, the the disputes have played out initially, they played out in beef but but any kind of gen- genetically modified food, but it turns out of course the europeans don 't allow it allow it internally, so regulations prohibiting the um, uh, sale in Europe of genetically modified foods. Only affect other countries, right? Because they've banned it internally in Europe, and so there are no European um, genetically modified modified foods. So there's a bunch of agreements that address those right. kinds of things as well.
0: And and. And, and so you have you have these you have these agreements. We have a body specified to hear them. And if you feel aggrieved, you know. And and for people who haven't thought about this before, I mean, just think about, you know, how is it that planes can fly in between countries? How is it that um, uh, someone in the, uh, the United States can sell to someone in Europe or or China or somewhere else in some other country? Um, What stops those other countries from putting in extreme discriminatory rules against people selling from out of that country? I mean, so there's a whole layer of of, um, agreement. uh, And whether you call that law or whether you call it uh, coordination or whether you call it soft laws, we'll get into hopefully, um, uh, you, you need some principles and understandings by which states can manage this interchange among, them, right. uh, among themselves. And so if I'm the United States and I'm really upset at something Europe has done or some law they've created, is in, then I can go to the WTO, which is an actual body of people. Right. Where are they located? Uh, they're located in
1: uh, in Geneva,
0: mm-hmm. and so you you send uh, uh, who goes there? Who who represents the United States before the WTO?
1: Usually, it's the um, U.S. Trade Rep's Office, the um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, United States Trade Representative, which is actually a, a part of the White House. And um, so it's not the State Department. Lots of people think it's the State Department, but it's not.
0: No, I thought it was the State Department. Huh. So, so you go there, and you, and would you write something like a brief? Do you write an? Uh, how do you how do mm-hmm. you make a complaint?
1: Yeah, it's just a it's a um, there's a there's a pretty complicated dispute settlement system that looks a lot like any court uh, system you would see anywhere. Um, you and know, the litigants are states. And the world. The litigants are states. Yeah, the World Trade Organization. You have to be a state um, to be a party. That of course doesn't prevent civil society from participating in in lots of different ways states don't usually bring claims in a vacuum usually they have there has to be somebody within the state that cares um, that says somebody that the state
0: cares about who cares
1: right Right. so like boeing has a problem or archer
2: daniels midland or right you know right whatever right if the oral argument
0: podcast has a trade-related compa- complaint. It may take some effort.
1: It might take a little bit of effort. Right. Yeah, to, to get that brought. Because we can't right. just bring it on our own. It has to be brought through the right. state, right? Right. Are there countries that ban uh, the Oral Argument podcast? Yeah, or we, I think we are
0: absolutely prohibited from uh, disseminating yeah. our podcast in North Korea. Oh, mm. my golly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. think it's because of something Sonia said last time. Yeah. I'd have to check, but I'm, I'm pretty not sure.
1: sure North Korea is not a
2: member of the World Trade Organization.
0: So we can, yeah. yeah. So, they so we can't
2: complain anywhere at all anyway. Yeah. yeah, and you will literally be thrown to the dogs. It appears <laughs> uh, if you break. I think that's not true. The laws of the I think, leader. I think it's not true. Let's hope not. Let's go
0: on record about. I I say it's not true. Anyway, all right. Let's go on because it's a family podcast, and we don't want to get into the details of the mm-hmm. North Korean unpleasantness. But. Um, so, so that's so there. There is that mechanism. It looks very much like a court. The states mm-hmm. look very much like the individuals within a sovereign system, yeah. and the sovereign is somehow the the collection of all those states operating together who act through this institution, the WTO. And and you would say that's very much like law once we or like law as we understand it, if we understand it to be a more disaggregated system of dialogue and um, and the occasional Austinian. Uh, command.
1: Well, so, so to go back to your other example, you know, what I was going to say is essentially you have this process, you file a short statement in your claim, um, this result, if, if the process goes forward, um, you, first what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to consult with the, the other side to see if you can come to an accommodation. But assuming you can't, you know, you, you go through a um, what's called a panel phase, which is essentially the, you know, the sort of trial level, there's an appeals process. And when all that is done, if one side loses, Um usually what happens is uh if the losing side doesn't bring itself into compliance with the ruling, the winning side is then authorized to take action against the losing side. So you're allowed to impose some sort of sanction. Um usually. In the form of a tariff, for example. Yeah, exactly. Um I mean they could take different forms, but but basically you're you're usually allowed to withdraw some sort of concession that you've made. So you're allowed to impose tariffs, you're allowed to possibly impose other kinds of restrictions on trade from the um, uh, from the offending uh, I asked only
2: because it's not a verbal scolding it is a it is a punishment that right. inflicts real harm right uh, so, so this is the, the point. point it's
0: the authorization for punishment in the same way that the supreme court saying this was an unconstitutional right. act would be the premise on which the uh, Congress presumably would act if it chose to impeach the president because of that unconstitutional act. And indeed,
2: in the absence of which, it might feel a great hesitation in acting. But having been blessed in this way, right, I, I, the winner of this WTO dispute, I now can do a thing which before I had won, I actually was prohibited from doing,
1: imposing this financial penalty of some kind or what have you. So, yeah, so so the example I sometimes give to students is I used to teach uh, con law, and you have this uh, Andrew Jackson's veto of the of the Second National Bank, right? He vetoes right. Um, uh, the bill, and he vetoes it because he thinks uh, it's unconstitutional, and he goes through – he doesn't have to explain it. He can just veto it. He, it's discretionary with him whether or not to sign a bill into law. But he gives all this explanation about why he thinks it's, it's uh this is a signing
0: statement, but, but a veto statement. But
1: it's a veto statement. Right. It's a it's a veto message, and, and part of his veto message sounds in law because he thinks it makes it more persuasive um, to be able to say, "I think this is." I just it's not just that I think this is bad policy. I think this is um, also unconstitutional. You have the same thing here, right? In your earlier example, Congress could take action against the the president. Um, you know, Congress could sus- suspend appropriations to uh, you know or refuse to appropriate money for certain executive branch functions um if it wanted to it's that that's something congress can do anyway but as joe just said right it's 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 helpful to for them as a as a sort of a political matter to have the supreme court say you know there's also a legal reason to do this and this works exactly the same way in the world trade organization the united states can suspend trade concessions this is a practical matter against china if it wants to um, that might be unlawful under the WTO. So when you go through this dispute process, the WTO says, you know what? It would be lawful for you to do this as a, essentially as a retaliatory measure. Um, it would be a permissible sanction on on China. And that makes it easier for the United States to do it. Um, I don't think that's any different from the kind of domestic um, system we're talking about where you have a dialogue that is backed by uh, essentially a, a, a sanction that's imposed through some sort of self-help. Um, by one of the uh, one of the agreed parties. And the, the legal process makes it easier for uh, the, these self-help sanctions to be So imposed. one of the things I think that makes it hard for people to... Um, and and I'm, you know, yeah. in
0: no way an international law expert. But, th- you know, that won't stop me from, from talking with you. Because yeah. I'm trying to become educated. Uh, but I think one of the things that makes it difficult for people to um, understand international law as law is not only the, you know, the, the apparent... Um, Ease with which sometimes some states decide simply not to comply, although that doesn't seem to be a problem with domestic law because people decide not to comply with various laws all the time. Uh, um, but but also just the the multiplicity of institutions and treaties mm-hmm. and it, you know where is the center? There's not one court. There are a whole bunch of different uh, mm-hmm. fora for um, uh, for disputes. And is there is there a way to give people? Um, uh, how, how do you tell, I mean, it, maybe it takes an entire semester is the yeah. answer, but is there a, if not a guiding principle, at least some kind of schema or structure that would help you, people to develop an intuition about how international law is actually done? Uh, so, you know, how do we, is it all, is it just a bunch of treaties, which are kind of like contracts? Is it, uh. Um, is it a combination of that? You know, there's customary international law, which we haven't talked about, which is right. kind of just background, almost the common law of the uh, yeah. uh, of the community of nations. Um, what, what kind of principle do you give people or what kind of intuition do you give people?
1: I tell students, um, and I, I particularly tell them this uh, when I teach international environmental law, um, that what you're essentially, t- that this is very similar to any sort of class you would take from Usha Rodriguez or... Um, any sort of corporate law class, that it's, it's very transactional. Um, if you think about, um, you know, a lot of business law, business disputes, of course, end up in court sometimes, but actually not that often. And a lot of times businesses that are locked in long-term relationships are going to resolve their disputes without ever going to court and maybe not even really in the shadow of the law in the way that we might think um, the other This is from this would.
0: famous paper about bargaining in the shadow of the law right. and this kind of intuition people have that even when people don't resort to courts... They are better able to. They are better able to negotiate uh, and, or more likely to negotiate, because the threat of court sanction is always lurking in the background.
2: Yeah. and, and yeah. a knowledge about what will trigger that sanction. That right. my, I have this move that I can make because I know that the response to it would be this instead of that.
0: Right, and maybe that's not always true. And certainly in the international context, it's not. You know, it's yeah. not necessarily the reason parties negotiate. They may be more concerned yeah. about. Potential for economic warfare or physical warfare than they are about some judgment of an international body administering a treaty.
1: Yeah, or or not just you know physical warfare is 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 a serious step, right? More likely you're going to get um, probably more likely you're going to get economic warfare, right? Um, where you're going to get various kinds of economic sanctions that are, right. that are put in place. Um, so you know I, I analogize it to to that kind of business law, right? Where where what treaties are is they're really sort of complicated. Um, contracts that allocate risk uh, among the parties in various kinds of ways, um, and I I pay a lot of attention. A lot of times, people think a lot about the substantive rules yeah. that are in treaties. So, right. you know, if you think about environmental law, you're supposed to reduce your carbon emissions by, you know, X percent by you know the year 2012 or something like that. Um, and people pay a lot of attention to that, but there 's all kinds of procedural rules that are spelled out in these treaties um, that actually allow you to con- you as a government to control your risk um, that are negotiated over and in a lot of ways that the lawyers care more about um, so if you if you 're out of a negotiation, I was a lawyer for the state department for a while and I was the lawyer for some for some negotiations you know, where we'd be negotiating treaties, and we'd have a delegation. And what you'd have is you'd have representatives from all of the interested offices in the State Department and then in other agencies that were interested. Um, and they had things they cared about, right? So they, And those things were almost always the substantive provisions. Um, and the lawyers were there to help them give effect to those things, but the lawyers themselves are not usually filling in the details of what the substantive rules should be. What the lawyers are paying much more attention to is how long is this treaty in force? Um, mm-hmm. when, what are the terms under which we are required to renegotiate certain provisions? Can you unilaterally withdraw um, from, the, uh, from the treaty? What are the rules for amending um, the treaty? These are the things that the lawyers pay a lot of attention to that the other people at the table are actually not paying that much attention to. Um, so but, it's the rules and then the rules about the rules? Essentially, essentially so the 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 other the
2: other agency folk might be more concerned about the rules right. and the lawyers are concerned about the rules about the rules lawyers are about power <laughs> that's why the lawyers care about the rules about the rules cuz that's power yeah right i mean that's the exercise power yeah creating uh,
1: rules changing rules right et cetera and that's not to say the, lawyer, the lawyers are also the lawyers also care about the rules in the sense that you're helping craft the language there to make sure that you have sure. effect, but it, but this the thing that is really the province, the sections of those agreements that are really the specific province of the lawyers are the rules about the rules, um, because there's not really other offices that are that are paying attention to those the effect of those specific um, uh, provisions. And so when I teach international environmental law, we go through a bunch of different treaties, and I make the students pull out. All of the um, the different provisions that would be so important if you were, they're important if you're negotiating a treaty, but they'd also be important if you're negotiating a merger agreement or mm. any sort of contractual arrangement, a distributorship um, agreement. In that sense, my environmental law class ends up not being that different from, you know, the drafting portions of my international business class. Um, because a lot of the exercise is the same thing. The, the rules that you're dealing with, the substance is different. But a lot of the lawyer's task of identifying how you allocate risk in terms of the rules about the rules is very similar.
0: Let, let me take another crack at this in a way that, uh, it, 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 at the analogy between international and domestic law in a way that may highlight the distinctiveness of, of what you're talking about. And um, and this is well debated, and I have my own ideas about this, and we're not going to go into all of that. But um, But a very simple model of... Of international law that looks a lot like um, uh, domestic law says that you know that basically the players in international law the the citizens in in the international law um, legal system are states Mm -hmm. Uh, and those states can have contracts among themselves and those contracts are called treaties and they're enforceable like contracts are Uh, and then there are rules which um, apply to all states regardless of agreements which are enforceable by individual states or enforceable by the community of nations. And that looks a lot like our tort or our criminal law, okay? And again, I'm not going to go into the full details about how you might criticize that or or what that could cash out into. But uh, I I mention this now only because um, when you think about the difference between contracts between uh, individuals in a domestic regime, you know, if Joe and I signed a contract about this podcast or even if we were even if we incorporated and signed some contracts about it. Um, We signed those contracts against a large background of of state um, past rules, which you might think of as kind of the constitutional law of our contractual regime, uh, that specify all kinds of things we might not specify unless, you know, they they specify all kinds of defaults, how the thing's going to be interpreted, what various things mean, and we don't have to think about those things uh, unless we want to and we we change them. Uh, With treaties, it seems to me they're oftentimes much more self-contained. So they specify not just the substantive rules for what the law will be, right? But also what we think of as constitutional law, that the law which the law of laws, what Hart calls secondary rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are the rules that tell you how—well, um, um, they tell you a lot of things. They tell you how to interpret rules. They tell you how to enforce them. They tell you uh, who can do it, when, what time, what institutions. All of these things are rules about the substantive rules. And when Joe and I write a contract here uh, in, in the state of Georgia, we can just specify our substantive agreements if we want to. And the state has taken care of everything else. You know, we know where to enforce it because we now if we want to change that, we can. We could write into our contract that we will litigate all of our disputes in the state of Florida and we might be able to get away with that. We might not be able to. Uh, we can put in all kinds of other things that change that we can even specify that we want to arbitrate our disputes, which we can get back into if you'd like. Um... It seems to me that with many treaties, not all, because I think a lot of them reference, like you said earlier, the WTO, and so you can take advantage of a lot of work that people have already done hammering these things out. But the secondary rules, what we think of as the Constitution in, in the state of Georgia, it may be the state contract law. It may be the, the, the laws that specify who, uh, who judges are and mm-hmm. who the president is and who the legislate. All of those are already there, but in international law, they are kind of accreted over time in the contracts themselves.
1: Uh, I'm gonna Am dis- I wrong? I'm going to disagree with you. Oh yeah. boy! Cool. Uh, so you have um, a lot argument. of the ba- Here we go. A lot of the background rules uh, do exist. So um, you mean, cus- customary international. Of some of them are customary international. Op- Many of them have been codified at this point in time. So mm-hmm. just to give you an example, um, you know, interpretive rules um, about how you interpret a treaty. Um, there's a and Vienna what, Convention on the interpretation of treaties. There's a Vienna Convention um, that tells us what the background rules are um, for uh, treaties, how they come into force, how you know whether you actually have a treaty, what the rules are for interpreting um, treaties. So. Um, you know there's there 's a debate of course in in u s law about whether you should look at legislative history well there 's a provision in the Vienna Convention that tells you how um, the what is essentially the legislative history, the travaux it 's called, mm-hmm. you know how that kind of stuff fits into uh, interpreting uh, interpreting a treaty, so we don 't have to every time we negotiate a treaty also negotiate interpretive rules. Those exist as um, they exist as background rules.
2: So your beef with the analogy was that it made international law sound more different from domestic law than it is. I think that's right yeah. in some respects.
1: Yeah, yeah. I also would say, you know, there there's a sense in which, to the extent you're talking, part of what you said was about institutions, right? That every right. treaty has to establish its own institutions, and I think that that would have been a more accurate. So you might you still would have had these default rules about, for example, interpretation. Um fifty years ago, seventy years ago. Right. But it would have been more true with respect to institutions. Um that the institutions had to be set up. Right. The right. default rule about there is a default rule about courts. The default rule is you don't you there's no jurisdiction. No court has jurisdiction absent the consent of a state. Right. That's a default rule. It's not a default rule that you know, some people say, well, if there's if there's not automatically, you know, mandatory jurisdiction, then you don't have law. If that's your definition of law, then I guess you don't, but that uh, seems not all that useful to right. an argument to have. Right. Um, so there is a default rule about the jurisdiction of of tribunals with respect to institutions. Nowadays, I think y- you know you sort of said, "Well, there's organizations like the WTO," but actually, I think there's a lot of organizations like the WTO where um, decisions are being made against the backdrop of an existing institutional structure. So almost every um, modern environmental treaty. Establishes you have what is sort of like a framework convention that establishes basic institutions, right? And then you have this kind of iterative process of lawmaking of negotiation that goes on. It's not judicialized in the way it would be. Yeah, um, can you help people understand that in climate change? What is the so to to yeah climate change is a good example. Um, Ozone is is another good example. Yeah, they have the same structure. What you have is a um, to take climate change. You have the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. There aren't that many substantive obligations in that treaty. If you read that treaty, it, it, it sort of says some things that we should should try to do. Um, but mostly what it does is it establishes a process for the negotiation of future treaties. Yeah. The most prominent, or really at this point, the only such future actual treaty is the Kyoto Protocol. Right. Um, the Kyoto Protocol is not a freestanding treaty. That's why it's called a protocol. It's a protocol to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, and, you know, incorporates by reference, you know, some of the um, provisions it's negotiated under the auspices of what's called the Conference of the Parties to the uh, the UNFCCC is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So it's negotiated by the parties to that. And they have, you know, the Conference of the Parties operates kind of like a legislature. You know, there's they, they have meetings, they get together once a year, they have they have voting rules. A lot of those rules are consensus. You know, you have to adopt things by consensus. Um, but, um, now you're speaking on the protocol. So the UN convention is kind of
0: like an agreement to agree, right? We're going to meet and hammer out an agreement on this thing. And then the protocol is a further step towards that by, by bringing in more specificity about institutions and mechanisms.
1: Uh, I wouldn't say it's an agreement to agree in the sense that you know, there's a whole literature on the agree- agreements yeah, yeah. to agree. And you really or did agree. It.
2: You already agreed about stuff.
1: Yeah. What you agreed to do is you agreed to create a negotiating process. You right. didn't agree to agree on the rules. Right. Um, but you agreed that you would negotiate through these institutions that are established by the UNFCCC. Right. Um, and then the Kyoto Protocol is is a binding outcome, um, binding legal outcome. It's a treaty. There are also a number of um, other outcomes that have come out of the negotiating process there that are non-binding. Um, so the uh, the Copenhagen Accords um, in 2009, which were sort of elaborated in in subsequent years, um, these things are not treaties uh, in the sense yeah. that they're not technically legally binding, but they specify rules of conduct um, for for governments. Um, how they're supposed to how they're supposed to behave, how they're going to tackle climate change, but they're not binding rules going forward. they're not they're not binding rules. so are they soft law? So I would say that they are soft law. Yes. and that what is yeah know no, yeah.
0: well, I wanted to bring that in because I think that's <laughs> yeah. you know I, I really enjoy that paper and i and and I think it's a great way of thinking about um, a kind of key um stumbling point that people have with respect to international law more broadly, but i I think you do also do a good job of pointing out that soft law is kind of all around us. Uh, anyway, yeah. you know, we're fill you know, the, within municipal legal regimes, domestic legal regimes, right. we have that as well. Can I so, be a
2: terminological skeptic and say, if we're having a, a now 40 minute conversation about what law is, do we really need to make a new phrase, soft law? I mean, so you got to prove to me that I, you're, you're making my life better by making me learn another term. Well, it, so it's a concept to that comes me, up in, that to me. right. Well,
0: th- we'll let Tim do that because, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he wrote the paper. Um, which now we'll I got to keep
2: up. track of. Like, there's soft law. That implies there's hard law. So, uh, you know, and maybe what coarse a law,
0: hmm? maybe coarse law and Course. Silky, silky law, right? Parboiled yeah. law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what, what what is soft law, Tim?
1: So, lots of people mean lots of different things by soft law. And so, I won't uh, bother to uh, defend all of the possible conceptions. But what I mean by it is that you have um, you have a set of rules. Actually specified in the Vienna Convention on Law of Trees about when you have a binding rule, when you have made a binding legal commitment, just as we have, you know, in, in the Constitution, um, a, a way to know whether or not a bill has become a law. Um, Congress passes it. Both houses of, of Congress pass it. They present it to the president. The president signs it. That's how we know we have a law. Similarly, we we have a a process in international law where we know that a legal commitment has been made in the form of a treaty.
0: And And it is a breach of a legal commitment which triggers sanctions. Right. The, or the authorization of sanctions, which may be right. imposed by the community, or as you mentioned earlier, right. maybe just authorization for the United States to take some action that it wouldn't normally be able to take under right. the existing body of international law.
1: Or it may just be reputational, as you, as you frequently have in business. Just branded as a lawbreaker. Right. You know, if, if, you, if, you, if you and I have a contract, you know, and, and we say, I say, Christian, you're going to um, serve me, um, you know, three cups of hot coffee uh, a day, and in exchange, I'm going to do your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, once a month, and you only give me two cups of, yeah. of warm coffee, I yeah. might not show up for the next podcast. You might not show up anyway. The, well, that's true. Then I would be a lawbreaker. See, uh, I, but you're I, not going to give me the coffee if I don't show up for the I'm podcast. Gonna, what I'm
0: going to have to do is schedule the showing of a movie that I know that you like. That's you true. get over here, and and all the mics are set up.
2: And all the mics are set
1: up.
0: That's how it's going to have yeah, to be. I mean, it's going to be some kind of entrapment. I you think,
1: lock me the next in
2: the one. basement. Yeah. In virtually, apropos of nothing, in virtually every conversation like this, I flash on uh Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome mm-hmm. um, Auntie's uh requirement
0: does Master Blaster run Bartertown?
2: <laughs> he does not uh, or it does not I should okay. say they they're being a pair. Mm-hmm. Uh uh Break a Deal Face the Wheel. <laughs> uh and so we're just we've got a complicated wheel here, right? There's right. lots of things on the wheel. Some of it's reputational, some of it's something else, but it's break a deal, face the wheel. Yeah, all roads lead to Auntie.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but uh, I will henceforth teach it that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yay! I, I may, I may consider showing Beyond Thunderdome in class.
0: Um, uh, I, I already think. do, but it doesn't. It's not apropos of anything. Oh, really? Yeah, just good. show it. Yeah, yeah, good. Good. Master Blaster runs Barter Town. That's fine.
2: So, yeah. so hard law is the agreement that you know you've entered right. with that binding commitment. Right. And soft law is everything else?
1: So soft law is, is uh, the way I think of it is that you have lots of instruments that are related to binding legal commitments, but are not themselves binding legal commitments. Okay. So the way I think about this is that, um, you know, if I said, um, you know, Joe, I will be at your house uh, for dinner at six o'clock and uh, I then don't show up at 6 o'clock, you're going to think, ah, oh, Meyer doesn't, you know, he he can't keep uh, his promises. And you're going to next time uh, maybe not invite me for dinner or you're going to do whatever it is you're going to do. You're not going to start getting dinner ready right till 7 because you know I'm going to be an hour late. If I say instead, Joe, I will probably be at your house at 6 o'clock or I'll be there 6-ish, and then I show up at, you know, 6.30 or 7.00, you're not actually as offended because the expectation I created for you was much softer, softer, much softer. Got it. Um, that's how I think of soft no, law. No, wait. I see. Mm-hmm. I thought. I thought the first was soft law. Now the first is the first is essentially a promise, right? right. To, to use the analogy, the first but is it's a, a promise in, that I'll
0: be there at at six. See, but I thought you were gonna. I, here's where I thought you were going with the analogy. Yeah. There are promises that we intend to have enforceable effect, that we intend to create consequences, right. and there are other promises that we can make to one another that we don't intend to have. At least those external effects. There are promises which you know we we understand going into them could be broken without you know uh, material consequence, un, uh, other than our ma- maybe mutual disrespect for one another. Um, but which we both agree wouldn't be the basis of a lawsuit, or wouldn't be the basis even of more informal like sanctions against one another, and this is all over domestic law i mean this is the problem i mean uh, that that maybe we enter an agreement, and we both agree that this agreement is not enforceable and the reason we 're entering an agreement is to coordinate right now, now right. that's one of your right. big reasons right. for soft law in general. We, we want to coordinate our actions, but we do not want to bring in this other institution of a federal district court or a state mm-hmm. court or something like that. We just want to write down right. the way we want things to work without the possibility of any sanction, and that would be kind Of what, and so that's where I thought you know, so inviting someone to my house for dinner, and I and you say you're going to be there at six. And even if I like rely on that, maybe we un- both understood that that was not you know, if you didn't do that, it's not like we get a court come in and do anything uh, about that. Uh, it's just that you would disappoint me if you didn't because th- yeah. we were trying to coordinate right. dinner, right? So I thought that was a key that example is, of that. Exactly. Yeah,
1: no, I think that is the difference, right? The difference is there. So I try to not talk about courts too much because there there aren't really outside of of some areas of economic law there aren't courts that really function uh, the way they do in the domestic area and in international law. So so the, the the sanction would be if I promise to be there at six, I've created a, a firm expectation that if disappointed is going to result in um, a greater cost to me. Joe's going to be more disappointed in me and may behave accordingly. Whereas if I create a soft expectation right i haven't joe's not joe's going to be less disappointed i've made less of a commitment joe's going to be less disappointed um if i don't if i don't end up doing it
0: so so is it a spectrum i mean you,
1: it's also true that you you don't you don't if you have something that's non-binding you you also do leave out some background institution so a non-binding institution is not going to be subject to the vienna conventional law of treaties
0: so There's how that. common is this i mean it, 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 there are, are explicit agreements known. not to not to uh be binding but that coordinator. What they're they're
1: incredibly common. And I would just point out they're incredibly common in domestic law and they're incredibly common in international law. Um, it used to be the case in international law that people would get really, really upset if you if you talked about soft law, because they said you either have law or you have non law. Um, I actually wrote a review um, of a very good book defending the idea that we should have law and non-law those should be the two categories there should be a bright line rule you know a whole book about term. that somebody wrote a whole yeah john Despermont at, at amsterdam wrote um, wow wrote a good book about it no it's it's, cool. a, it's a good book it's it's a good defense of what i ultimately think is an incorrect um position both incorrect descriptively and and normatively um incorrect if you can only make certain kinds of really binding commitments you might not actually be able to cooperate over certain kinds of problems you might want to be able to go part way right if you invite me at six and i'm not sure if i'm going to be able to get there but i have to either say i'll be there at six or i won't be there at six well if i don't want to disappoint you i'm just going to say no if i have the option but we're we're worse than that it's like i could either get there six or expose
2: myself to money damages right well (laughs) hell i'm not going to have dinner with you at all then Right. right 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 so you by by making things too rigid Right. Uh, and too consequential, you can deter. There's a bunch of marginal cases that will just disappear, right? Right. right. And, and so, why do that?
1: Yeah. And so all over international law, you have all kinds of cooperation that is of this non-binding form. And, and the, the way I think you think of it is government saying to each other, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably do this or we're going to try to do this. Um, almost all financial uh, cooperation um, is done this way. Um, there's something called the Basel uh, Banking Committee, for example. Yeah, um, all of the rules on banking that were both existed before the financial crisis and that have been made after the financial crisis are made by this committee. Um, they are in some, they're called the Basel Accords, and there's a series of them. Um, and they're not treaties; they're not legally binding as a matter of international law. But what what happens is the 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 um, banking the bankers the central bankers that participate in these negotiations, so Ben Bernanke. Um, comes back and they use their administrative authority to enact these rules um, domestically. Um, so you achieve a form of coordination among governments in terms of their, their banking rules um, without needing a formalized treaty, right? It gives them a little bit more um, flexibility internationally. They're not making the same kind of firm commitment that you would make if you say, I am going, as you know, governments, some governments made in something like the Kyoto Protocol, where they said, I'm going to reduce my emissions by... Right. Does that make Uh, them
2: more uh, amenable to updating in light of new circumstance? The fact that they haven't been the – they're not the outcome of the more formalized
1: proceedings? So this is a little more complicated. I think the answer to that is yes, but in a specific way. Um, Some people say it's just easier to um, renegotiate things that are non-binding. I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um so if you and I are negotiating about um uh you know kind of what something right what time to have dinner how many cups of coffee Christian has to bring us um then I like these <laughs> negotiations I, it's very good more uh, the answer is more uh, yeah, well, yeah definitely we definitely, know that's that the, <laughs> the answer um and we decide to renegotiate right and I, and the answer you know you want um you know dinner to be at 5 and i want it to be at 7 and we would originally agreed on 6 and we're renegotiating. Whether or not that's binding doesn't necessarily change the dynamics of our negotiation. You still want it to be at five. I still want it to be at seven. What I do think is different is that it's easier to walk away from a non-binding commitment. Mm. So in that sense, if you if, I, if if I've said you know I'll probably be there at six, and then I call you and say you know Joe, we need to to renegotiate this. I you know I, I let's say I'll I'll probably be there at seven, and you say no 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 you know what let's let's make it five. <laughs> um, you know, if I, if I have said I will be there at six, um, then I'm, I'm, I'm unlikely to want to walk away from six, right? Cause that's breaching the, the original commitment I made to be there at six. Whereas, you know, if I said I'll probably be there at six, I, I'm, I'm more likely to say, you know, what, I just can't do six. You know, I told you I, I, you know, I might not be able to do it. I, you know, I implied I might not be able to do it. I can't do it now. We're more, I'm more likely to walk away. And if you really want to have dinner with me, which I assume you do, um, you're going to be more <laughs> likely to agree to, um, to seven. Okay. And you see, you actually see this in, in various kinds of soft law arrangements where, um, particularly powerful countries are, um, more able to walk away from the agreement and therefore are more able to, to renegotiate it. Um, so an example, um, that I use is that there's a set of soft law rules governing trade in, um, uh, nuclear uh, technology it's called the london club the london uh, nuclear suppliers group guidelines and one of these w- rules essentially said for reasons that aren't worth explaining that you couldn't trade with india um, because india the reason is because india has a nuclear uh, military nuclear program yeah nuclear capability but they're outside of the nuclear non-proliferation treaty and this started to make not a lot of sense to folks because it's not like India is going to give up its uh, military nuclear program, and it's a democracy, yeah. and it, it seems to be relatively stable, um, and we should be able to cooperate on the civilian side with them. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a lot of there were a lot of parties within the, the London Club, this group of countries, about forty countries, that set these rules that that were opposed to that. The United States just struck a deal with India on the side and went to um, the London Club, which actually meets in Vienna. Um, and uh, <laughs> that's a great trivia question uh, answer factoid. And you know, Condoleezza Rice went to Vienna and said, "Here's the deal we've negotiated." Um, and everyone said, "Well, okay." Uh, and and the deal essentially was ratified. The U.S. deal was essentially ratified and reflected in um, the Nuclear Suppliers Group guidelines. What that was was essentially a threat by the United States to walk away. From um, from these guidelines, and that threat is more credible because it's not a treaty, because you didn't you wouldn't be breaching a really binding legal commitment if you walked away from them.
0: Hmm. So your evaluation of the of the potential consequence of of a counterparty walking away um, is. is is it creates a higher risk because they they might well do it. Whereas if they're a binding thing, like, you know, they wouldn't have a less credible threat. You have a
1: less credible threat of exit. Yeah. So, so So
0: it makes each party more powerful going forward.
1: Right. It gives, so, so so some parties more powerful going forward. Right. I mean, well, if I don't care if you exit, it doesn't help you at all.
0: That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, and so we're not going to get to everything that you do in the paper, obviously. And it's, uh, um, but, I think you have you have four reasons that you think that um, soft law is used a lot. You know, so that's the puzzle, right? Why yeah. would you prefer uh, non-binding non-binding agreements over binding agreements? It seems like you know at least a maybe a naive view is that you would always prefer to have your agreements enforced. And you said yeah. descriptively, that's just not true because they're all over the place. So what's the reason for that? You give four good reasons of which coordination, which we've talked about a lot, is only one. Right, uh, and then you kind of poo poo a few other. Right. descriptions of it so maybe we should leave that to the paper unless there's leave people to the paper unless there's something else you want to highlight
1: i would just uh say there's actually a book that's gonna be coming out uh, that develops these you don't uh, say these ideas. i do say <laughs> i do say yeah uh-huh um right now and this is andrew guzman and i are writing a, a book about this so mm-hmm. uh um tentatively titled uh, goldilocks globalism so oxford university press nice. 2015 all right, so, so we, can, we
0: can talk about the title later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've and got that ideas. Book's, that I, book's
1: not available we, until when? 2015? Uh, that would be my guess. It could be late 2014. So if,
2: if someone asked you, if they hadn't had an international law class, and they heard this, and they thought it was fun and interesting, they wanted to learn more, and they, I'm willing to read a book. Mm-hmm. So what would you recommend to them as a book that, that a person could read um, that you think would help them think a lot better about the way these things actually work? An existing book, correct? Yeah, correct. Wait until twenty fifteen. Yeah, well, they're going to read that one later. later. It's a
1: foregone conclusion. They're going to read that one later. What I'm saying is, what do they read in the interim? So, I think that the um, foundational book in this area is Bob Cohane's "After Hegemony," um, which is a book from the early '80s. That is the first book to sort of think about. It's a Bob Cohen is an international relations scholar. He's not a lawyer. Yeah. But the, the book now would be the kind of book that would be written by a lawyer. He's thinking about institutions, not just legal institutions, but institutions more broadly, but thinking about how they work in the absence of a sovereign. Um, and um, thinking about, in particular, how transactions costs um, mm-hmm. in, in this contract, this system of contracts between governments, how that how that operates. Um, there's also a really good book by um, a guy named Lloyd Gruber um, called "Ruling the World," um, which, again, he's actually a, um, a international relations uh, scholar uh, at the um, he's actually at the uh, um, Public Policy School of Chicago. But uh, it's a nice book that sort of thinks about how you use these threats of exit to derive to um, to force the creation and the shaping of institutions um certain countries are so important that if they if they are threatening to walk away um cooperation collapses and therefore you get um you get certain kinds of cooperation they're not thinking about the issues that lawyers or you know these kinds of soft law um institutions they're not thinking about the being a conventional law on the law of treaties but they give a really good um background framework to think about how these dynamics um uh these dynamics um Operate. there's also a really good book by greg pollock and um uh mark schaefer greg schaefer and mark pollock um about the gmo's dispute between um uh, the u.s and europe it's called uh, when cooperation fails um that plays out a lot of the, a lot of the uh, um instruments that are used in those areas are soft law uh and that greg and mark have written really thoughtfully about soft law um and uh so their book is both a great study of the dynamics as well as a really good case study of a really a really important trade mm. dispute. Can
2: I ask another question?
1: I I want to. I, I we only have a couple minutes. Okay. Do you want to So that's for So my other question oh, is
2: um, <laughs> my other question is what's the most important what's the single most important book uh, that uh is does not at all appear to be about international law, but in you, when you read it, you know it is in fact a very important book that gives you insights about international law, infinite jest, but the book itself never mentions. It doesn't, isn't about it on the surface, hmm. but hmm. is about it. Actually, you want to ponder that for a while? Yeah, I'd have okay. to, I, I had, had a question kind of like
0: around. that. Maybe, all right. So maybe you'll be, maybe it's a paper. <clears throat> well, I was, I was going to, um, Oh, I have, a, I have a suggestion on that. Anyway. Um, uh, what I wanted to know is, um, uh, you as a as a scholar and as a person mm-hmm. you know and, and you think about like why you're interested in international law you you know mm-hmm. when i think of tam i'm thinking uh, of a guy who really likes thinking about um institutional incentives yeah. and about kind of gamesmanship between institutions and how that plays out mm-hmm. more broadly do, is that do I have your number as a as a scholar? And I think I mean, is that how you is that kind of what gets you up in the morning and thinking about these things? Is trying coffee? To, coffee is we what talked about gets it, to, It's the coffee yeah, right against right, me right. in the morning.
1: But but I do think about those things after I'm up in the morning. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. And 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 so when you when you have a new problem, like whether it's climate change mm-hmm. or uh, uh, the Libyan intervention, mm-hmm. or you know what the hell to do with North Korea or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, are you? are you thinking about all the different institutions that bear on that and the incentives or how to create new institu I mean, this is yeah. like, this seems to me, I don't know if it's a modern trend or not, yeah. uh, but so it certainly is, seems it.
1: This, I mean, this is in a lot of ways, the big difference between, um, international, uh, what are some comes called, you know, the realists, international relations scholarship. And there's a strain of it in international law scholarship as well, who say international law is not law. They say that states wake up in the morning and they have a problem. You know, they want, a certain outcome in Libya, and um, they have a you know a, they have the preference about what that outcome is, and they simply pursue that. And to the extent they use institutions, it doesn't really affect, including law, it doesn't really affect the outcome. They're just pursuing um, their interest, and I don't think that's right. I mean, I think that the institutions that exist um, beforehand and the institutions they create to solve the problem actually can shift um the way the way it plays out. And there
0: you're just recapitulating kind of a debate about domestic jurisprudence, right? That yeah. I mean that there's no accident they're called international realists because it right. totally recapitulates the early 20th century movement to expose judges as politicians in robes who are uh exploiting, you know, or pursuing their own preferences through yeah. kind of the 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 art and uh, uh of using you know, apparently solid legal rules is kind of a, a, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, Subterfuge. Yeah. Um, And, and then, you know, since then there's been a lot of trying to figure out, well, what is distinctive about the legal method? What are the constraints? They aren't, you know, it's not formalism. It's not like the words themselves lock in place, only one result, but there's something in between total freedom and total constraint. And, trying to understand the terms of those constraints and how we can design to achieve certain amounts of constraints and certain amounts of political decision-making is, a, you know, that's just jurisprudence writ large. And so, you know, my own perspective is that international law is not special, I, right? That it is yeah. a collect, you know, like every other bit of law is a collection of in, information exchanging institutions uh, that operate in fairly predictable ways. And that most of what goes into creating a legal system is um is putting various political decision making authority various bits of that among those different institutions and and helping them to communicate and cooperate
1: i think that's right i think that's right i think that one of the things that um you know a, a lot of scholarship a lot a big advance was made um as scholarship in international law started to turn a little bit more descriptive because the other thing that that happened in in international law scholarship was it was really focused on this the vision for what international it was very normative you know what should international law be doing we should be stopping human rights abuses we should be making the world um, the world better. And it would be really nice if that was government's objectives. It just turns out that they usually don't care about that, um, except derivatively. Um, you know, they have whatever their interests actually are. And, right. and the realists actually have this right, which is that, you know, governments are, I think, largely self-interested entities. Now, their interests may be altruistic, right? They may, they may act, you may genuinely care for whatever reason about the plight of um, people elsewhere in the world, um, but that 's a preference that they ha- that they have that they're that they 're pursuing through these um, through these institutions and one of the things that I try to do in my scholarship, which I think is is sort of an addendum to what you said earlier, is to think about how those distributive conflicts play out um, because it's not it 's not a bunch of governments getting together to pursue their vision of the good right uh, it 's a bunch of governments getting together to pursue their preferences, and their preferences often are going to conflict. Um, and, uh, I think that, that, that kind of distributive aspect, when you start thinking about international institutions, um, as being created to resolve and also as sites in which distributive conflicts play out, um, you start to see some things that you, that you, that have sort of been missed, um, uh, in, in the legal scholarship. Now, Mm -hmm. international relations scholars are, are much more attuned, I think, to, to, to distributive conflict, um, but uh, in international law, it's, it's largely been missing. Um, there's been a lot of, of progress on um, t- you know, two other books I should have mentioned, um, Andrew Guzman's How International Law Works, um, and a new book from uh, Eric Posner and Alan Sykes called The Economic Foundations of International Law, are both really good um, expositions um, generally about how international law descriptively functions. What are the motivations of states and how do those shape the creation of, inst- of institutions? But a lot of that thinking, I think, is really um, in its early stages. The, the, the scholar, on the scholarship side, we've thought a lot more about um, how interest groups, for example, influence um, administrative agencies um, and, and Congress um, and the organization, the way the organization of Congress and administrative agencies can affect legal outcomes. Um, we, we've done a better job of harmonizing the idea both that law matters, um, that, it, that it's not just politics, but that politics influences legal outcomes um, right. and the distributive conflict can influence legal outcomes. And that's where I think international law scholarship Real realism. is going. Re- that's that's where the word <laughs> should be. Real realism. Real realism. Yeah. Um, I think that's where international law scholarship is moving, is, is trying to unpack those um, facets of international law, which I think brings... I think international law is already like, you know, domestic law in a lot of respects, but I think the scholarship is catching up.
0: All right. So here's my proposal. Yeah. I propose that we have you on again sometime, hopefully soon. Mm-hmm. Cause today we've talked about like international law, international scholarship and the study of international law right. as a general matter. Like what's distinctive about it. What are some of the problems that in the study of international law? What are some misconceptions? What are different conceptions of it? Uh, and um, you know, but but we may want to have you back to ask you about specific things. Like, I, you know a specific international dispute. Maybe that will appeal to people.
1: I accept your proposal. Okay. in a binding uh, fashion. Not really, a, you're bad. I soft fashion. Yes, I commit oh. myself to appearing on your podcast again.
0: Yeah, and that won't. And that doesn't fail for lack of consideration. So we've
2: no. been uh, we've been licensed. I uh, I have been licensed to get in the highest dudgeon. I just want to be perfectly mm-hmm. clear about this. Mm-hmm. That if you if you disappoint this expectation, mm-hmm. you have licensed me to hit the highest f- most fevered pitch of high dudgeon exactly. in response.
1: Exactly. Okay. I have created an expectation in you that if disappointed, I suspect your disappointment will uh reverberate throughout Athens. Uh, at the very least.
2: Yes. Well,
0: it, you know at least we didn't omit the nerd part of the podcast for today. <laughs> so you know that's that's a good thing. So there's that. That's yeah, yeah. Well, there was no danger of that from the beginning. Agreed. I'm involved in this thing after all. You know, so this, I don't do anything that's not nerd. I think, and this is one example. But that conversation was brilliant because I wasn't involved in it, and it was just pure nerd from <laughs> beginning to end. Um, if they want to get in touch. This is the listeners I'm talking about.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. Because we haven't had any listeners. Yeah. mail. So yet. I
0: don't, if you want to, if you want to follow uh, Tim on Twitter, I think he's, what is it? At Rob Delaney. Is that, <laughs> is, that, is, that is that what you are? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. Okay. There yeah. we go. Oh, um, uh, Yikes. And, I, and that's the only place you appear online, right?
1: Uh, yeah. 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 yeah.
0: We, we will link up your faculty profile on mm-hmm. your SSRN page and, you know, and, an and all kinds of stuff. We, we, yeah. we do full dossiers. Yeah. And I thought about paper. tweeting.
1: Hmm? You what? I thought about tweeting. Well, if, I don't tweet.
0: If you if you if you start doing the twitters, mm-hmm. uh we will we'll, we'll link you up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll are you tweet? Oh yeah. I thought, I th- oh yeah. I assume so. Yeah, big yeah. time. Yeah. Okay. Hit the big time. I've got. I'm literally in the double digits of followers. Wow. Double digits. Yeah. I'm a super m- junior tweeter. Uh huh. I think you have more followers than I do, though. No. Yeah. It's I, a bunch of robots. I have a pretty low number too, because I, I got my Twitter account like way back in the day. And I delayed for like, you know, four or five months after I thought, eh, you should get an account. If I'd right. done that, I would have been like, you know, have an even lower number. Yeah. Actually, but it gives do me have absolutely no status because <laughs> I have lower, you know, you know, I have almost no followers. Right. But if you want to follow me on Twitter, at Chris if you want to follow Joe on Twitter, can they even do that, Joe? They can. At Get Me Joe Miller. Correct. And, uh, uh, and if they want to email the podcast to complain, I think that's the only reason people would want to email. But if you want to email the podcast, we are oral argument podcast at gmail.com.
2: Indeed. Although I would hope they would do more than complain or write if they have something to say other than a complaint where we will receive their complaints. We will promptly delete them, but, uh, we will receive them. Uh, but I would like people to write other things as well.
0: I just, I I would love it too. I just don't expect it.
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't even have a soft law expectation yeah, okay. about that. Well, and, and, I have no expectation. All
0: right. So the show's also on iTunes. You can rate us on iTunes. We already have one review, which requested more Darcy. Indeed, and we've yeah, had and we, no we, we Darcy failed today. On, We failed on that today, but Sorry. You know, but Tim's here, so who yeah, needs Darcy? Yes.
1: And to be fair, I did nearly trip over Darcy three times on my way in. Is that right? So cool. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah you, so we you had a collar, you could Darcy. shake, and her presence say, has been felt. Yeah. All right, well, listen, thanks a bunch, Tim. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, take care.